0: Cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon school of medicine at Mount Sinai.
1: We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 29, 2019. I'm Megan Cantwell. In this week's show, I speak with Krista Leste Lazare about what may be behind a string of mysterious horse injuries at the Santa Anita racetrack in Southern California. And Sarah Crespi talks with online editor Katherine Matisik about the negative downstream effects of cash bail and what research can tell us about other options for the pretrial justice system in the U.S. For our monthly book segment, books editor Valerie Thompson talks with author Robin Metcalf about her book, Food Routes, Growing Bananas in Iceland, and Other Tales from the Logistics of Eating. You may be familiar with the tale of Seabiscuit, a champion racehorse in the 1940s who raced on the Santa Anita racetracks in Southern California. That famous course is currently under hot water for a string of unexplained horse injuries and deaths in the past three months. A total of 22 horses have died in that period of time. I'm here with Krista Leste-Lazare
2: to talk about what may be causing these deaths.
1: Thank you, Megan. Could you first talk
2: a little bit about what exactly is causing these horses to die? The vast majority of these fatalities are related to catastrophic injuries. This occurs because the horse actually has such an extreme fracture that it can't be repaired and the horse either dies immediately or in most cases is euthanized. Why can't these fractures be repaired? Most of the time it's a welfare issue. The horse is suffering immediately right there on the track. I mean, these injuries are very dramatic. Most of the time you see the horse's legs swinging to the side. So they need to be put down immediately. Even if you really wanted to save them, most of the time the bone isn't going to heal correctly. horse's need to stand up the majority of the time. So if you're trying to put them in a sling, for example, to put weight off that leg, it's gonna cause other pathologies in the other legs or problems with the welfare because they need to be moving around. What are the
1: usual risk factors that make a horse more likely to suffer this type of injury?
2: Age can be related to it. We're talking about older horses, and by older horses, I mean four-year-olds instead of two-year-olds are more likely to have catastrophic injuries. Male horses are more likely than female horses to have catastrophic injuries. But more importantly, it's the existence of a pre-existing stress fracture that usually doesn't get noticed. The horses may not show very many signs of it, or those signs might get masked, for example, by anti-inflammatory use. So these horses may be developing very subtle fractures that then eventually snap in the right conditions.
1: Another type of risk factor might be the track itself, and scientists went to study the Santa Anita racetrack to see if that might be a reason for
2: these string of catastrophic injuries. What did the scientists find? They didn't see any particular problems. However, it's possible that the current testing methods that they have just aren't picking up all the problems. And it seems to be the case because clearly something is causing these deaths, and we don't have a scientific explanation for it yet yet.
1: Santa Anita is a dirt racetrack, and there are other kinds of racetracks that are synthetic. Is it possible that the dirt track is more dangerous for these horses to race on than synthetic tracks?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think most experts would agree on that, certainly all the experts that I have spoken with. Dirt tracks do have a greater fracture rate, which runs about twice as high as the catastrophic injury rate on synthetic tracks that's mainly because the maintenance is so complicated on those dirt tracks. I mean, they're very subject to the weather. They vary considerably uh, in their consistency and the level of compaction according to how much uh, water is in the track. Whereas with the synthetic tracks, those are made of synthetic material like wax, rubber, recycled carpet, and those are hydrophobic. So they're not really susceptible to the water issues like the dirt tracks are. Recently in Southern California, they've had
1: a lot of rain, which of course has impacted that dirt track, could that have been a factor
2: in increasing the amount of deaths? Oh, it's very likely indeed. problem is that the Southern California has had a drought for the past 10 years, and so the managers have been managing this track according to very dry conditions. Now that they've had up to 19 inches of rainfall at the track in the past three months, they're kind of going into new territory. It's not completely new territory, and they certainly are able to get advice from track managers dealing with lots of water. They're not used to it and it can create new challenges for them. And if they're not getting the management just right, yes, it could lead to problems.
1: How do they manage it if it's rained a lot?
2: Well, for one thing, they try to prevent the saturation from happening to begin with. They do a process called rolling and sealing. They do this overnight to try to keep the water from really soaking into the track itself. Other methods like floating the track where they can allow the rainfall to roll off onto the sides of the track. Once it's dry, then they Do a method called harrowing, where it's kind of like combing the track and opening it up. And then they, they have to water it to actually keep the humidity levels as constant as possible. The layering of the track itself also introduces complications to maintenance. Exactly. Because you're talking about four different layers of track. The top layer is called the cushion, and it is designed to absorb the majority of the shock. The horses also need something to push off from to give them their speed and also to prevent other kinds of soft tissue injuries from uh, being just too soft, as you can imagine, what it'd be like constantly running in just deep sand on the beach. So these horses need a layer of push-off, and that's called the pad. When the scientists studied this racetrack, what exactly did they look for? What they could do to try to see what's going on with the horses that were injured days before is check the depths of the different layers of the track to see that they're consistent. Because if you can imagine, they're running Across this softer cushion layer, and then they're hitting the pad below. And if the pad isn't always at exactly the same level, it could be kind of like stepping into a hole or suddenly having a part of the ground that that lifts up and you weren't expecting it. And so you can strike it harder than you meant to. So from stride to stride, these horses need that consistent depth of the layers. And if they're not getting it, it could put them at risk.
1: But there's no way to continuously
2: monitor to ensure that these layers are intact and working as they should. Not at the moment, but Mick Peterson came out with his machine. He's the scientist who did the investigations on this track. It drops a, a metal horse foot, if you will, into the ground and it measures the reaction of the track and it also measures the forces that are occurring on this metal horsehoof to give them instant feedback to understand the biomechanics that are going on here. And that helps them measure the depth and the biomechanical reactions. They were also using ground penetrating radar to measure the depths from every 10 centimeters across the track. These are things that are helping them figure out what's going on, but this is not something that is used on a regular basis and honestly would be kind of impractical to do at the moment. So the idea is just to have maintenance protocols in place that will ensure that the track is maintaining its consistency.
1: If it's so challenging to maintain consistency in these tracks,
2: why is it that the U.S. hasn't switched over to predominantly synthetic courses? They actually did switch over. Santa Anita switched from 2007 to 2010. They had a synthetic track during that time, which was actually required in California because research had shown that they were so much safer. But the trainers found that anecdotally, it caused more soft tissue injuries. So it wasn't causing the catastrophic injuries, but it was causing soft tissue injuries. And they felt like the horse's career lengths were shortened. So they didn't want to use them. And generally speaking, the horses, the thoroughbreds that we see in America, the trainers believe that they are the vast majority bred, quote unquote, for dirt tracks, they don't perform as well on the synthetic tracks. And if they're invited to an international meet, for example, a lot of times they won't go because they know that they're at a disadvantage because they run better on dirt tracks. Are there any other theories as to why these injuries are happening? There is the possibility that it's related to drug use. Most racehorses in America run with medication use. It's actually forbidden in most other countries. The horses are not allowed to have medications on race day itself, but in America they can. So it's possible that these medications are affecting the horses. For example, the anti-inflammatories might be masking signs of problems that would give a clue to the fact that the horse is at risk of having a catastrophic injury. What makes it difficult to say that that's really the issue, however, is that these drugs are being used by horses all across America and not just at Santa Anita. If that's the problem, I think we would be seeing a few more issues popping up elsewhere. They could be contributing factors, but there's got to be something else that's making the difference and that might be the track there still is some uncertainty as to why
1: exactly Santa Anita is experiencing these high deaths, but they're planning on reopening the track soon, right?
2: They are planning on reopening it on Friday. They are waiting on the decision of the California Horse Racing Board to give them the approval to open it. As I understand, that is expected for Thursday, and they are anticipating that that will happen. They have already scheduled uh, races for Friday. Thank you so much, Krista. Thank you.
1: Krista Leste-Lazare is a freelance science journalist based in Paris, France. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org podcasts. Stay tuned for Sarah Crespi's interview with Catherine Matisic on reform and research in the U.S.'s cash bail system.
0: In the United States, if you get arrested for kind of a lot of different crimes, there's a good chance that you'll end up in jail before you go to trial. Sometimes you can pay cash bail to get out of jail and wait for trial at your house, but not always. There seems to be all kinds of unforeseen consequences to this system. Online editor Catherine Matasik is here to walk us through some of those consequences and talk about what science has to offer in this arena. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. So I hope I haven't set up too big of a task for you. Why don't you just start the fallout, some of the issues that people have with this cash bail system.
3: Basically, when we're talking about this idea of cash bail, Mm you know, where you have to essentially put down a down payment to get released prior to your trial, the increasing use of this system and the increasing amount of money that judges and magistrates are asking defendants to pay has really uh, driven this argument that the pretrial justice system is biased against poor defendants and minority defendants. Right. Right. So
0: that's kind of the overarching issue. But So say you're a pretrial defendant and you're you're held unless you can provide some amount of money. Mm -hmm. What are the consequences to
3: that? There's lots of consequences for society and there's lots of consequences for the individual. Any time behind bars is time that you're not going to your job. It's time that you're not spending with your family or paying your child support or doing all sorts of things while the world kind of goes by outside. Mm -hmm. And for the state, the costs are actually pretty high. It's estimated that the cost of pre-trial incarceration is about $14 billion a year in the United States. On any given day, an estimated six out of 10 people in jail are actually awaiting trial. And that's, I think that, you know, is about half a million people a night. And there's been pushback.
0: Cities and states are making changes And you know some of this stuff isn't really based on evidence for like what might work best. So can you talk about some of the changes
3: that are just being enacted right now? So I think right now, for example, New Jersey has basically eliminated cash bail for most offenses, and that means that
0: people don't have to pay and they don't have to stay in jail if there's like a certain um, certain offense in play here.
3: Right. And sometimes they have to actually do other things like get tested for drugs or show up to hearings or submit to electronic monitoring, but for all intents and purposes, you're right. Related legislation is on the table in, I believe, 24 or 25 other states right now. And then in some cities, reform-minded prosecutors are really taking things to the next level. So, for example, one that I can think of is in Philadelphia, where prosecutors have stopped asking for cash bail for about 25 different
0: offenses. Mm -hmm. As we, you know, kind of alluded to before, these are changes that are running ahead of what the science oh, is. Yes, right? absolutely. So one, <laughs> let's get to the science angle. What is research shown about how likely someone is to show up
3: for court mm-hmm. when they have bail pending or not. Yes, yeah, so I hate to say this, but the findings are kind of all oh, across yeah, the sure. board. Yeah. Um, one researcher said, you know, that she feels that people right now are kind of flying by the seats of their mm-hmm. pants when they're trying to make a lot of these reforms. A lot of the studies that have happened up until this point basically look at huge databases of statistics And they try to take these big numbers and make comparisons and say, okay, we know that cash bail works, or it works in these situations, or it doesn't work in these situations. And when I say work, what I mean is one, making sure people show up for their trial, Mm -hmm. and two, making sure they don't commit any new offenses. But when you look across all those data set style Mm -hmm. studies, what you find
0: is they're very hard to add up together.
3: Right, so one of the problems here is that the data are very difficult to compare. They're also compiled in different ways Mm -hmm. across jurisdictions. And so it's really hard to make comparisons. The other thing that's hard to do with these big, huge data sets is to infer causation. So there's this huge number of confounding factors. For example, you know, is somebody very high risk or very low risk? You know, did they commit a felony? Did Mm -hmm. they commit a misdemeanor? What do those things even mean from jurisdiction to
0: jurisdiction? Right. So we don't really have a consensus from the literature at this point, but now there is research being conducted that seems to be better place to answer some of
3: these questions. Yeah, you're right. One of the big trends right now is there are a lot more controlled experiments that are taking place in collaboration uh, with law enforcement officials. And mm-hmm.
0: this Philadelphia case, I think, is a really good example. It's not that it was randomized, but that they were able to compare what happened before a change and after a change.
3: Right. So getting back to this change that we talked about, and this is the change where I think in February of 2018, the Philadelphia DA announced his prosecutors would no longer seek cash bail for 25 offenses, right? They actually reached out to a couple of researchers who are prominent in the field and said, hey, we really want you to run an analysis of what happened before These reforms were passed and what happened after. And the things we want you to look at are, one, how many people are going to be released who wouldn't have been released before? Two, what is the likelihood that these people are going to show up for their trials? And three, what is the likelihood that they're going to be committing new crimes after they've gotten out of jail? Mm -hmm. They were able to take, I think, data from 20,000 cases Before and after these reforms took place, they combed through the data and they discovered there was a 12 percent jump in the number of defendants who were released on their own recognizance prior to their trial. Fewer people in jail, fewer people paying bail,
0: and also less money the government has to spend to...
3: Right. And in in this case, I think it was like 1,700 people, just over 1,700 people Mm -hmm. who were released who wouldn't have been otherwise. Right. And then the other two things that they looked at, as we discussed, was the appearance rate at trial and then uh, whether or not any new crimes were committed. And they found that those rates were pretty much the same okay. across the board. And so basically what this meant, they said, is that eliminating cash bail appears to have very little effect on court appearance rates or public safety. hmm
0: So in Philadelphia, they're looking at what if we don't require cash bail for many more crimes? And what if we decide not to keep people? You know, we're going to save everybody a lot of trouble. In Pittsburgh, this is another part of Philadelphia, or this is another part of Pennsylvania. They're looking at what if we send defenders, public defenders, into these hearings where bail is set? Will that make a difference in how people pay cash bail or how people end up in jail before trial? How is that being conducted, Catherine? And and have they seen any results from that yet?
3: So as you may know, these bond hearings are really, really short. Most of them last two minutes or less. And oftentimes the defendant is there facing a magistrate or a judge who's going to set the conditions for their release. They've got somebody from the prosecutor's office, but they don't have anybody defending them or speaking up for them. And so what this new study is going to do is it is going to provide kind of a randomized group of individuals with public defenders automatically from the moment of that first appearance. And what do they think that those public defenders could
0: change about whether or not they have to pay bail or have to go to jail?
3: Right. So the idea is that from the outset, this individual who has been accused of a particular crime has somebody on their side yeah. advocating for them, somebody who knows the criminal justice system, who knows the laws, and who knows best how to position that client for success, mm-hmm. you know? And so one of the things that they would do is they would be able to provide counsel to the defendant, you know, letting him or her know how they should plea, what their likelihood of success is, and essentially chart the course of action for how their whole defense is going to take place.
0: That sounds really interesting. What kinds of measures are they going to be looking at after they do this intervention?
3: So after the intervention, the main things that they're going to be looking at, are there going to be more detentions, fewer detentions? Are they going to stay the same? They're going to look at rates of appearance at trial. They're going to look at future re-arrests, but they're also going to look at a couple of other outcomes, one of which is the likelihood that a defendant will plead guilty. Mm-hmm. Another one is the long-term effect of pretrial incarceration on employment. Right. Okay. And that is something
0: that comes up a lot, is that not only if you go to jail, could you lose your job from, you know, just waiting for trial and not showing up at work, but also over the long term, if you decide, I better just plead guilty so I can get out of jail. Then you have something on your record that makes it really difficult for
3: you to find work. Right. So one of the gentlemen I was talking to in the course of doing my reporting was actually in this very situation. He was in Philadelphia. He was arrested for marijuana possession and the intent to distribute, which is one of the 25 crimes that no longer requires cash bail. He was held for about a week and because he lost his job and because he wanted to get out so he could be back with his family and supporting his family he decided to plead guilty. After this happened it set off this whole cascade of events which his wife described, you know, as basically this cloud that was following yeah. him around and one of the effects of that cloud was that every job he applied to after he got out essentially rejected him Mm -hmm. because he had pled guilty and because that was on his record. And that was actually um, a point that was driven home by another woman who I talked to who is a public defender. You know, she's been in the business for 30 years. And she essentially said, if you are facing this choice of either paying money you don't have or staying in jail for days, weeks, months at a time before your trial occurs, She says, you know, almost everybody is going to plead guilty whether they did it or not. Now, that's something that is not <laughs> not something that we can necessarily confirm support or science. confirm yeah. by science. But the fact of the matter is, is researchers are working hard to see at least when is this the case? When is this true? And when is it not true? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so
0: much, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisek is an online editor for science. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org podcasts.
1: Stay tuned for our monthly book segment. They discuss food routes, growing bananas in Iceland, and other tales from the logistics of eating.
4: Welcome back to the book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Valerie Thompson, the book review editor here at Science. Today, our guest is food historian and futurist Robin Metcalf, who's here to discuss her new book, food routes, growing bananas in Iceland, and other tales from the logistics of eating. Robin, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thanks for the opportunity.
4: Food isn't like other consumer products that need to be moved around. What makes it different and what does that mean for getting it from point A to point B?
5: When you're transporting food around, you have to think about the fact that the minute food comes out of the ground, it's basically dying all the way to your plate. I mean, it's sort of a gross way to think about it. Mm -hmm. But basically, it's it's rotting, it's oxidizing, it's it's changing form. and You don't have that with all of the other things that are moving through the supply chain. So it requires a certain detailed handling and the ramifications of getting it wrong are huge. We put food in our bodies. If it's not done right, you know, it's a life and death situation.
4: So I think probably what comes to a lot of people's minds when we talk about food logistics is this idea that we should be trying to minimize the geographic distance between the farms that our food comes from and our tables. But in your book, you kind of talk about why that's not necessarily true. Can you elaborate on that?
5: The whole idea of local food is up for grabs, really. I mean, when you think about the distances that anything needs to travel in Texas, local might be 500 miles away. Mm -hmm. But in New England, where all the farms are dense and there's small pieces of property, you know, smaller farms, really buying local could just be five miles. One gets caught in this trap of sort of the perception of distance. And it doesn't by definition mean it's better. If you look at economies of scale, something being flown in from Hawaii might actually be better nutritionally and cost a lot less and be a lot fresher to your plate than something that's down the street that may have been sitting around for a while, may not have been raised under the best sort of circumstances, and might be 10 times as more expensive. So we've sort of attached this local idea to a whole set of values that are certainly debatable. I think the meaning of local could be tied to local economic development. I mean, one really good reason to buy a local apple is to support somebody, you know, that lives down the street or small businesses or somebody that you know and is that's in a business to keep the economy local. And that way I think you can probably make that linkage towards it's better.
4: It's kind of one of those things that's it's not one way. Like there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it. And depending on which way you're thinking about it, maybe it is better to get certain foods from a further distance than what you would
5: be thinking. Right. And and I mean, supply chains are super complex, too. I mean, if you go and you down to your farmer's market and you say, is this meat local? Is locally grown meat? And someone says, absolutely. And then you say, but, you know, there's no hay around here in Texas. I mean, (laughs) you know, this is not. Yeah, well, we get the hay from Idaho. So (laughs) so is it local? You could get completely in the weeds if you begin to pull apart a supply chain.
4: So you mentioned that unpredictable weather events can have a big effect on food logistics. Is anyone doing anything to shore up the food supply chain against climate change?
5: Yeah. In fact, climate change is ending up to be one of the really big friction points or or opportunities, I think, for technology right now, because supply chains you know, are basically optimizers. They're trying to find the optimal path from the farm to your plate. And they do that around a certain set of constraints where things grow best, where there's a good labor force, you know, where there's an infrastructure. There's a bunch of things that are all going into that algorithm of optimization. If you change something like the weather and you change it in ways that's not that predictable, and also it's changing quickly it basically uproots the location of where a lot of the food is grown you've been going down to Guatemala at a certain elevation and buying coffee beans you know suddenly the atmosphere is heating up so now you have to move that plantation somewhere else the supply chain needs to flex and find another way of distribution this is a big opportunity for applied technologies to be able to mitigate this change that we're we're seeing now, climate-wise. One solution could be indoor growing systems. You could move those coffee beans anywhere you wanted to in order to optimize that chain. You no longer have to grow those beans basically in Guatemala. There's other reasons you might want to, like to support the local economy. There's an ecology of things that are going on around that coffee bean in Guatemala, an ecosystem. But if you really just wanted to get those coffee beans grown and can't be grown in that certain spot, you can create that climate in an optimum position by moving the growing place somewhere else. Another case in point for that is the warming waters of the ocean, where fish have to go further and further out or deeper and deeper in order to be in cooler waters, Mm -hmm. which causes a fisherman to have to travel twice as far, use twice as much fuel to get to their catch. But now with sustainable fish farms, finding a way to do that sustainably now through tech and sensors, et cetera, you can farm that fish and then not see a decline in that option for protein from the water.
4: So kind of related to that, you talk about how food culture and practices move around with people. I guess I'm just thinking the the relationship is that as people are displaced by climate change. So people who are displaced from places like Libya and Syria and Sudan are changing these food demands in the communities they're moving into. So what sort of impact does that have on the food logistics system?
5: Well, it's interesting. So each ethnicity has its own food culture. And as they move, they take their food culture with them. They also take their own supply chains often. People who are eating halal or Middle Eastern food culture will bring with them people who know how to process meat, you know, what kinds of food and and things like that with them. And there'll be sort of another ecosystem that follows them around. So you'll see pockets of these developments in cities all over the United States. Um, I know the Somalians that go to Maine have created their own food culture right there. This is that flexibility of the supply chain. And they'll usually bring that with their own ethnic culture throughout the supply chain, meaning everybody handling that material, those ingredients to that new location will be of that same ethnicity because supply chains depend on trust and trust is usually embedded within relationships that rely on bonds that run very deep.
4: I imagine that is good. Like it adds like a richness and kind of a redundancy to the supply chain to make sure that we have multiple sources for our foods.
5: Absolutely. I mean, choice is what we want. And so the more options we have and the more variety and the less dependence upon any single provider, any single culture is really a good thing. You're right. It's a richness.
4: Let's talk about food waste. So it's something that we're hearing more and more about, and it's a topic that's increasingly being discussed at the policy level. So you mentioned, for example, in 2016, France passed a law prohibiting grocery stores from disposing edible food. So how are
5: technologists approaching food waste? We run here in Texas a startup challenge for food startups using technology to solve many of these problems. And we've seen some really interesting startups come through, such as Rise that uses spent grains from beer making. And then they turn that into flour that is then sold to bakers who then sell bread. And I mean, there's, there's lots of lots of ways of upcycling waste into very usable food items or, or other items. I mean, into wallpaper, you know, utensils being made out of food waste. The whole material science field has a great opportunity to think about ways of handling waste. And, you know, I think people will generate less waste in the long term but right now let's do something with the waste that is being generated and creating energy systems out of it creating ways to power buildings some of the biogesters that we see out there those can be made to be more efficient I mean my dream scenario is that every house comes with sort of the equivalent of a garbage compactor
3: mm-hmm.
5: you put everything in it right but basically it's a mini generator and in turn will in a very optimized, yet to be seen technology that can convert that into energy that would power your home. I mean, look, you wouldn't have to put those garbage cans out every day. You wouldn't have to you know, be shamed into recycling or composting. You wouldn't pay an electricity bill. You could basically be creating real-time energy to fuel your own house. I think it would have a lot of, not only environmental benefits, but you know, aesthetic ones as well.
4: I love that idea. I love it. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about how advances in genomic technologies are changing food logistics.
5: Yeah, that's right. It's a great question because I mean, talk about a topic that has divided people around. You know, what to do with our food system? We've sort of, sort of survived decades around the whole Monsanto, now Bayer. GMO conversation. And it seems to be we're seeing a a sort of shift in the conversation towards a lot more acceptance of technology in our food system in general. People who were put off by processed food now find clean meat or plant-based burgers completely acceptable, and you can't find anything more processed almost. And this CRISPR technology that's coming out, which is basically another form of modifying genetic material, but just doing it a different way, using a different tool, the editing tool, I think holds a lot of promise, a lot of potential for being able to make some foods more drought resistant. You talk about climate change, uh, some of the things that are needed to be able to do that. And also when personalized algorithmic diets come on the scene being able to design food specifically for you or i i think we barely know what that's going to look like and we certainly have a long way to go to actually decide how to target that technology so towards something that's really useful and that really solves a problem but i think there's new tools and i think the whole genomic thing whether it's a biome Genome that you're looking at, food being able to be decoded into data. There's an interesting roadmap there. It'll be interesting to see how it goes.
4: So we talk about incorporating more and more technology into the food supply chain isn't always a good thing. Um, it can also create security risks. Sounds like there's a, a lot of work to be done in that
5: space. I'm a technology optimist. I think all of this technology is going to dramatically transform the food supply chain, the food system for the better. But at the same time, I think we have to have eyes wide open. And I think that I don't know if you're familiar with Black Mirror, the -hmm. television episode. This should not be a Black Mirror experience. We don't want to find ourselves in a situation where we've gone down the road so far that it's really hard to put safeguards back in.
4: All right. So talking about a, a black mirror experience, can you please tell me why someone thought it would be a good idea to use facial recognition software to track individual chickens through the supply chain?
5: Well, it turns out in this particular case, this is a company in China where sort of like rural tourism is a big thing, being able to see chickens on a webcam are a big thing and for urban populations. And so if you're advertising cage-free chickens, the argument, the marketing strategy here is, well, you can actually make sure that your chicken was walking around and wasn't (laughs) caged up and you can actually make sure it's going places. The potential there for that is that if you can actually monitor individual animals, and it's coming up for, I mean, I hate to say it, there is cow face recognition,
4: Oh no! And,
5: oh, and there is. If you're really into being tongue tied, there is fish face recognition. It's being used by conservation groups to make sure that fishing stocks are not being overfished. Or, I mean, you know, this is something.
4: a dumb question, but like, you can tell
5: fish faces. Yeah, you apart. can. I mean, seriously, AI, machine learning folks that that are doing that. So. Um, I mean, it, you can do it for humans, right? I mean, sure, yeah. so all you have to do is teach it. You know, here's a chicken face and, you know, here are all the various permutations of a chicken face. I mean, wouldn't you love to be on that design team? <laughs> 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 but
2: right. anyway,
5: it's there, whether we like it or not. And I think that um, I have learned over time that after uh, the laughing subsides, you turn around and, oh my gosh, there's actually something there. So I've I've learned to laugh and then sort of wait.
4: <laughs> sure. Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap, wrap things up. So thanks so much for joining us today, Robin.
5: Thank you for the opportunity. It's super fun.
1: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts, or you can listen on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. To place an ad on the Science Podcast, contact midroll.com. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.